Is this moment perfect? Have we made it? Are we here now? Or not? Do we need just a little bit of something to make it perfect? Just, just another little few days on retreat maybe, or maybe the sun to come out. We live most of the time not quite there yet, don't we? Endless little projects. As soon as I get such and such and such and such together, then I'll be there. It's coming, it's soon, but it's not quite yet. This isn't true. And we do it our whole lives in all circumstances so often. So when I get settled, when I get over that first day that Mary was talking about and I get through the, the slugging, through the bog, whatever she called it, and then I get in the groove of being here and then I get familiar with the timetable, then they'll be fine. somewhere over the rainbow. And it's challenging, this life, because as soon as we get over one rainbow, there's some other thing. There's some other little thing. Oh, I just have to deal with this one now. Let me just handle this. And it just never stops. We really live with, and see if this isn't all true for yourself, we really live with this feeling that it's supposed to stop and that we will, it'll all smooth out somehow, someday. There is a bend, we just up ahead, we just have to negotiate this last bend, but we believe somehow that, that there'll be smoothness after the bend or after these particular set of bumps or these particular pits we've been falling in. It's, it's going to settle out. We believe somehow, I think you do too, I do, we live with that, that it, w- it won't always be this way, and there's this Shangri-La up ahead. You could call it nirvana, you could call it skill, you could call it health, all these things, which of course, why would we come here? Why are we sitting here? This smoothness up ahead is what we're looking for. So we have this built-in belief, it seems, that it could always be just a bit better. This moment isn't quite enough. No one taught us that, actually. It's all supposed to be plain sailing, and when you hit the bumps, there's a problem. But really, that's what we, how we function. There's something problematic about the bumps, and we need to get over them so that we can get to this place that it's supposed to be like. But I never promised you a rose garden, somebody once said. Why do we think this? What is this about the way we're made that has this anticipation of Shangri-La or smoothness or something? Well, one of the reasons is that it sometimes is. (laughs) plain sailing and smooth and bump free. 
And when we have those times, they feel so good that they then set up this promise, this expectation that that's how it is supposed to be. We like it that way, of course. It's comfortable. We dislike the bumps. They're uncomfortable. But we take, we take that discomfort and comfort and we evaluate it, we measure our lives by that. And that isn't so smart. Because as we know theoretically, conceptually, intellectually, everything cycles all the time. What goes up must come down. The moon is full and then it's shrinking. It's already past its fullness and it's now in its cycle of waning. Everything is cycling. We know the theory. If we really deeply knew this, that what goes up must come down, that everything changes, that everything has its cycle, at times it's smooth, at times it is not smooth, if we really, really lived with this knowing, we wouldn't go into that place of like, just when I get over these next bumps, I'll get back to that, that part of the cycle. We only know it partly. We don't really believe it. We don't want to know that truth, that it is all of these 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. So when it is smooth sailing, we get this feeling like, yes, and like, oh, this is how it's supposed to be. I've got it. I've made it. Great. And it's a great feeling, and we feel like we've vanquished the problem, or we've figured stuff out, or we've overcome whatever it may be, hindrances. We feel uplifted, we feel relaxed, we feel confident, and then blam, you know, some other thing will come out of the blue. And then what we say is, oh no, I've lost it. As though there was something we shouldn't have lost, we bemoan that loss. If we really understood that this is absolutely inevitable, we wouldn't bemoan anything, would we? But of course we do. So we're being tricked a lot by the, the comfort of the pleasant times. We're tricked into, into just the desire of them. A teacher once said while I was on retreat, there is nothing like a good sit to ruin your whole day. <laughs> it's a setup. You can put sit to ruin your day, or you can put compliment to ruin your, you know, or, or the opposite of compliment, an insult to ruin your whole ego crumbles. Or when we have something lovely, it's a setup to be disappointed, absolutely guaranteed. That's the one thing for sure. The very nice thing will not stay, and so then we'll, it'll be a letdown. This is what the mind does, this comparing mind. Always evaluating, always comparing. This is as good as this. This is not quite as good as this. Therefore, something, something must happen to make it as good as that. It's this endless chasing to try and have the optimal experience. Because it feels good. It feels right. We like it. So when I get it together is always in the future.
So this mind, even having arrived, some of you, and only been here for a day, here you've been here with this mind, this mind that is not your own, this mind that is willfully doing what it wants to do. You want it to just be calm, be present, notice what's happening, and off it goes. It's just this wild thing. Where does it go? Why does it go so? Even those of you who've quietened it down and all the supportive energy of the retreat, still at times it just, off it goes. Why does this mind go like this? Partly it's this habit of looking for just the next moment to optimize life. It's a habit. Our minds seem without lots and lots of encouragement, lots of training, lots of support, our minds would prefer to go flying off somewhere else than stay here. It's like we like to fly off. Flight is much more uh, the tendency of the mind than rest, than stability, isn't it? It's extraordinary how this mind, it'll fly off in a tiny flash, off it's gone. Busy, busy. Anything but this moment, please. A fantasy, a, a description, a memory, anything else. Partly it's the entertainment value because what we think about is stimulating and it's juicy and it means a lot about me and it defines my life and it's comforting or all those things. So it's an entertainment value, partly. Partly it's habit just because it always has done it. But it's also lots of other reasons. We're nervous. Mary Grace said last night, it's actually we're very vulnerable, tender beings. Sociologists said we're just jumpy and nervy. We wouldn't survive if we hadn't been jumpy and nervy. The non-jumpy, nervy people got eaten by the dinosaurs or whatever. So we'd better have been jumpy and nervy. Life's tricky. So the mind is so ready for trouble, ready for wary. Guarded. But also why it, fl- it flies off so readily at the drop of a hat is because it really, really believes that somewhere else is this optimal possibility, this better, this next moment, this futuring. We really are, where we're flying off to is over rainbows. Because we really believe that the next moment is going to be better than this one. This is this deep deep mistake. So this is our, this is our trouble. We're, we're fooled. And we're fooled into this. And we're not like fools. We're wise, intelligent beings. But the mind is so tricky that it tricks us into believing because it works. The mind can actually really help us. We can plan and then organize ourselves and prepare for the winter and, and uh, decide where to go and where it's helpful and where it's not helpful and who to be with and who not to be with and who's going to be friendly and who looks nice and who we don't trust. It's actually it's a very useful mind. It really does help a lot. But because it's so efficient, it convinces us that it's utterly efficient all the time. And that's the problem. It's only somewhat efficient some of the time. And how do we know when to trust it and when not? 
problem is when the big things happen that we can't rearrange, then we really discover the limits of the mind. But because we've believed in it and relied on it and used it so much, so often, it's become the only, the only device we have, the only strategy we have is to, if only, and improve the situation the best way we can. That's the only thing we've learned when we haven't learned these other skills that we learn here. then um, it's a shake-up when we discover its limits. This is what happened to the Buddha, as we all know. The Buddha was raised in this protected environment, beautiful palaces and healthy, happy people taking care of him and the best food that was available in those years and so on and so on. But he actually didn't have to come up against the big things that he couldn't control. All that was controllable was controlled very nicely, thank you. So it was all very cushy. But once he was outside this controlled container of his life where we would like to live, where we're in charge, we think, our mind can rearrange things. When we get outside that, into the wilderness, into the big world, into well, real big things happen that we can't control, like old age, sickness and death, for instance. Uh Uh-oh, now what? This strategy, this if only this around the next corner when I get over this doesn't work anymore because we can't. It's too big. Life is way bigger than we can control. And it's, it's a bit shocking. It's humbling. We see how arrogant we were to think we could actually f- fix it all. I like that phrase, rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. It's ridiculous. But we only know to do it, so we just keep on desperately rearranging. One of the ways the Buddha described our experience is that we only see the tip of the iceberg while we're talking about the Titanic. And so we only see a small amount of what's happening. We don't really understand the depth and the, the power of life and uh, the forces of nature. We, in our arrogance, we really feel, you know, we've, we've understood what's happening. We've just seen a small part of it, and we can fix it and rearrange it and make it suit ourselves. But there's this whole, this whole big force happening that we don't even realize is happening. And then when it happens to be big enough to upset us, then mm-mm, it shakes us up. So your Rinpoche says this, we smother our secret fears of impermanence by surrounding ourselves with more and more goods, more and more things, more and more comforts, only to find ourselves their slaves. All our time and energy is exhausted simply maintaining them. Our only aim in life soon becomes to keep everything as safe and secure as possible. When changes do happen, we find the quickest remedy, some slick and temporary solution, And so our life drifts on unless serious illness or disaster shakes us out of our stupor. He also says this on the same vein. The world can seem marvelously convincing until death comes along and evicts us from our hiding place. We're hiding in this ignorance. We're hiding in this possibility that I can get it all sorted out soon just around the next corner. It'll then plain sailing. It isn't true. It doesn't work that way. But it does work very somewhat. And that's why 
we're in trouble, really. And this mind of ours that's trying to help us be comfortable and, and fix things, and just it's just going to be okay really soon when I get over this next thing, I get this thing done. It's just our mind trying to make us be happy. It's doing the best it can. It's all it knows to do. It's, it's this sweet thing. And it does a great job, but it just can't ultimately do it all. It doesn't know its own limits. And we're all like this. Every, every mind's the same. All of our minds trying the best they can to reassure us that it'll all be okay. So we watch our minds and we see this. We see their efforts. And mostly that's what we see. You sit here day after day, hour after hour, and we see these efforts of the mind. Just this. Oh, then I'll just do this. Maybe a little bit more of this. Oh, maybe that's... Oh, this isn't okay. It's all it's doing, all day long, trying to have us become okay, feel better. It's trying to help. And we watch it, you know, and isn't it so extraordinary? Here's the mind thinking its little thoughts and then doing what we want it to do as we're training this puppy. Okay, stay here. Breathing in, breathing out, feeling the sensations. Boop, off it went. We don't notice the bloop. We don't notice the moment it goes off. Unless the mind becomes very quiet, which it can at times anticipate that feeling it's going to think a thought. But most of the time, it's already gone. And we didn't know it went. It just did it. It just disappeared off into some story, as you know. And then at some time or another, and we don't even know how this happens. It's miraculous. It spits us back out, and here we are again. Oh, my goodness, I just wasn't here. So extraordinary. And we're back, realizing I'm sitting here. This is such a, such a fascinating play of the mind. We're gone, we're lost, we're caught in our stories, in our fantasies. We don't even know we're doing it. We're just there, and then we're not. It's such a jump, jump, jump. This is a very, very useful thing I found so useful for myself to really, each time I find myself here again after having been gone, to really notice that now I notice all my senses. And when I've gone off and been gone, there's nothing I can do about it. I don't know that I've gone. I'm off in my whatever story I'm telling. But the moment that I'm here again, I realize, I encourage you to do this regularly, I can hear things now. I can feel my body now. I'm aware there's people in the room now. I could smell if there were a smell. I'm aware of it. I could see light if I were to open my eyes. But when I'm off... All those senses are gone. I'm in just the mental sense. And it's actually, however dramatic it might be, it sort of takes up all my attention. It seems very juicy and very compelling. That's why it sucked me up. But it doesn't have these other senses functioning there. It's, not, it's a narrow, however powerful, it's a narrow experience. The experience of being here, which may be much less, less exciting than the mind story, it's a much broader range of experience because it includes all these other senses. 
this is very useful to tune into. We miss a whole range of our life when we're off in our heads. We're missing what's actually here. And all the rest of the senses functioning can reveal so much about life. Watch the difference. Get to really notice that difference. Very useful. I like the word vivid. When you're present, even if there's less drama going on, less storytelling going on, all the memories and so on, or the desires, not there. Nevertheless, because all the senses are now functioning fully, it's much more vivid, it's much more clear, it's much more real. We're much closer to reality then. It's really useful to tune in that way. Welcome to your senses. So this mind trying to make us happy, help us be comfortable, give us well-being, rearrange the decktes on the Titanic, as we know how it does this. It's focusing on the events that are happening. It's focusing on the statements people are making or uh, the touches happening to the body. It's focusing on the discrete objects that are occurring. I know we all know this, but this is it's so important to keep watching ourselves do this. This is what the mind does. It latches onto, focuses onto, notice discrete separate events, experiences, sounds, tastes, and so on. Thoughts, ideas, pictures, images, memories. Many, many, but separate discrete things. And it doesn't just do that. It immediately then loves them or hates them, pursues them or avoids them in some form or another. That's what it's doing. That's its job. And it thinks if it does that really well, it'll make things okay. It'll pursue the things that it wants and it'll avoid the pitfalls and then we'll be okay. That's the whole plan. But as we have seen, when there's the rest of the iceberg or some big thing happens and we can't pursue it or avoid it, it's just doing what it's doing. It's leaving when we want it to stay or it's coming when we don't want it to come and so on then the limits of that strategy are exposed. And then we realize there, is, there has to be a better way of doing it. And there is. Thank goodness there is another way. And this is what we're learning. An alternative. And it's such an alternative way. It's a completely radical way. Stephen Batchelor, one of the Vipassana teachers, scholar, he says, I think the Buddha was one of the most radical human beings to walk the face of the earth. His whole way of Behavior was completely radical from this way that we've always known and done. That works relatively well. Another way. Instead of learning to, attempting to adjust our world to suit us, we adjust ourselves to suit it. We just never think of that. We just look out there at it, pursuing this, avoiding that. It's a, a dramatic radical, different way. And because it's so different, and because the other works so relatively well, we have to train ourselves in this other way. It just isn't spontaneous for us, even though it's brilliant and it works so well. What we are seeking, says Wu Wei Wu, is what is seeking. 
what we are seeking is what is seeking. It's ourselves we're seeking. That's where the answer will be, not in more of these things or less of these things. So we come to meditation because the other strategy sooner or later shows its limits. If you're under 30, then it's been sooner. And congratulations, a lot of us, it has to be many times before we realize that there's got to be a better way. So we have to question this way, the way that we've always done it. Here's what Hafiz says. Now that all your worry has proved such an unlucrative business, why not find a better job? And he says, first, the fish needs to say, something ain't right about this camel ride, and I'm feeling so damn thirsty. (laughs) So... What we need to do instead is to learn to trust, and trust takes time and takes experience, to learn to trust that this is enough just here, and this moment and what I'm aware of in this moment is enough, is the plain sailing that we're wanting. It's very radical with this mind that's so jumpy and prone to flying elsewhere all the time. And when it doesn't really trust that it's here, this answer right here, of course it's going to keep looking elsewhere. But you know, and you do know, part of you knows, or else you wouldn't come to meditation retreat, that when we are fully here, only when we are fully here, the mind is really aware of what's happening in just this moment, this little tiny moment, whatever it may be, that is the only way healing can happen. That is the only way our minds can become clearer and clean. Really what we're doing is we're cleaning up, we're cleaning ourselves. It's sort of housework, it's like personal housework. I like housework, people think I'm a little weird because I actually really like cleaning things. But when you clean something, you have to be paying attention to the junk. That's what it means, that's what cleaning is. So there's no way you can have clean without actually being aware of what you're cleaning, that it needs cleaning. We're cleaning ourselves, we're cleaning our minds and our hearts up, shining, finding our original brightness. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? And to become originally bright, which we already are bright, we're covered over. We're covered with miscellaneous layers of beliefs and worries and strategies, coping mechanisms, tendencies, and so on and so forth, personalities. And the only way we can clean ourselves is by being with ourselves just as we are, with all of the stuff that's in the way of our being pure and radiant and bright. Our strategizing mind in its old way thinks, oh no, something else over there, better, nicer. We don't really like to trust that it's actually right here with whatever's here is the only way. mindful, present, 
sense, mindfulness, knowing what's happening just now. Can we believe this is enough? It's hard for us to believe it's enough. It's hard for this mind who spent so long doing the other to just, that's enough, as Mary was saying last night. I want to read a few words from Bhante Gunaratana. Meditation, he says, the purpose of meditation is personal transformation. The you that goes in one side of the meditation experience is not the same you that comes out the other side. Meditation changes your character by a process of sensitization, by making you deeply aware of your own thoughts, words, and deeds. Your arrogance evaporates and your antagonism dries up. Your mind becomes still and calm, and your life smooths out. Thus, meditation properly performed prepares you to meet the ups and downs of existence. It reduces your tension, fear, and worry. Restlessness recedes and passion moderates. Things begin to fall into place and your life becomes a glide instead of a struggle. All of this happens through understanding. Meditation sharpens your concentration and your thinking power. Then, piece by piece, your own subconscious motives and mechanics become clear to you. Your intuition sharpens. The precision of your thought increases, and gradually you come to a direct knowledge of things as they really are, without prejudice and without illusion. Bhante Gunaratana, Sri Lankan monk, in his 80s, been a monk for, since he was eight years old. So, how do we do this then? Be looking here, staying here, discourage this mind, this flighty, jumpy mind to stay here. Two things I'd like to say that really are, I think, essential things. And one of them is, um, I'll, I'll describe them in a mnemonic which I like and have used, and those of you who've uh, been with me before, no, I really like this mnemonic. It's the mnemonic slow, S-L-O-W. And then the other is the actual nourishment of what, uh, what we trust. So I'll speak both these. The, the practice, the training practice of mindfulness with these four, S-L-O-W, I find this so helpful. I'd just like to share this with you. S, several words I think of as applying to how we practice under the word S. I think the first one is stay. Just stay here. Instead of fly away, obviously. Instead of the mind going on to just this next moment, something else, just stay here. But there's a steadiness that happens with that. There's a, a settling down that happens when the mind can stay. And another word which I really like, an S word here, is sink. Sink your mind into your body. Sink your mind into your breath. Sink your mind into the sensation. Sink your mind into the feeling of tiredness or squirminess, whatever it is. Really settle. Come into yourself. Come into this moment. Climb inside it. It's, it's the becoming intimate or close. So I find the S means all these things, very settling, very helpful. 
It isn't just stay here, nail this poor old mind down, don't you dare move. It's not that harsh. It's more sinking. Hmm. When we do, only when we do, and the mind can stay and really learn to stay, 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 we discover so much more information. We think, oh, I know that. Tick. I have really a, a mind that tends to do that. So I know, it'll say, and then I've done that, like a checkbox, onto the next thing. But it doesn't actually know very much that way. It's very superficial knowing. If you can stay with something, stay, stay, so much more gets revealed in time. Just stay with simply with the breath. It just gets to be extraordinary how much is knowable there. Initially, it's like, okay, I know the breath. I'm, I'm doing that. But not really. Only when we sink in it do we learn so much more. So S. L. I use this L meaning uh, love, friendliness. Because the mind is so jumpy and nervy, because a lot of the time when we're cleaning ourselves, we're looking at the stuff that's difficult, that's painful, that's when we're worried, when we're tired, when we're trying so hard. We need to actually have a lot of kindness to be able to do it. We don't want to do it. If we just do it because we should or because somebody said we ought to or this is the right way to do it or some such sort of dominating way, we're going to rebel. Not all the time, but at times when it's tricky or uncomfortable, really uncomfortable, we won't want to stay there. Are you kidding? We'll do anything else, anything but this moment. So we need a lot of friendliness to encourage ourselves. We need kindness. We need reassurance. That's when we need some metta for ourselves. We need to soften our hearts. We need a lot. That's why metta practice, we learn this practice so we can incorporate it in those times when we need the encouragement. Because it's tricky. So... Do it with gentleness, with friendliness, with kindness. And we need to do things like remember why I'm doing this. I'm doing this because I love myself. I'm not doing this for any reason other than that I love life, I love goodness in the world. Then, of course, I want to stay, even if it's unpleasant. So we have to have this heart. We couldn't do it. We couldn't do it. We can't do it. Oftentimes. So love and that we're doing the best we can. It's that love that, that undermines the judge. Oh, come on, Heather, get it together. You know, I've got that little comment goes in my mind tons of the time. Come on. Those of you who were here last month who are sitting, um, James, as you know, one of your teachers last month, I sat a lot of, a lot of my practice, a number of years ago I sat with James. I remember one time... Um, uh, having a Dharma discussion with James about my practice and he was asking me whatever and I'm explaining something to him and I'm expressing just that, that attitude that I have had so much is like, come on, come on, come on, get it together, that sort of... And he was very subtly, and I didn't know he was doing it till after he'd done it about five times, sitting opposite me and he had his legs crossed and I had my legs crossed. And, and every time I said something in that vein, he kicked me with his foot but hardly touched me he just like went as if he was going to kick me and his little foot came out and then I'd say something else and he'd just go <laughs> and I got that I was just like beating up on myself over and over and over and he was just was manifesting it with this little like you're doing it again you're doing it again I remember when I realized that with his aid 
that's not being very friendly. It's the opposite. It's that driving. It's that you know, critical judge. We need a certain amount of you know, honesty about ourselves. We're not going to just get all mushy here. But we can't just be too mean. Or we'll just react the other way. S, steady, stay, sink. L, loving, friendly, kind, gentle, respectful. O, open, open. This is pretty, I think they're all essential. I never know which is more, I always say this is the most important piece, but they all are. But this is really important, open. Because we're, learning, we're unlearning this control, we're unlearning this, I'm in charge, I can just rearrange the deck chairs and it'll all be fine, because it's bigger than us. So we need to learn this, like, this is how it is, actually. Oh, I see, oh, oh, wow. That allowing, hugely important. Let it be the way it is. It's not our job to fix it, to control it. It takes forever to remember this. Oh, it's like this. Oh, that attitude. Notice in yourself, you have some experience. There's a sound, there's a, somebody coughs, anything. Are you going like, oh, or are you going like, oh? <laughs> Just, you can hear that, that attitude of, of allowance, of openness, huge. It's, it's an attitude of freedom compared to the attitude of controlling and rearranging. It's about truth. This practice is truth-telling practice. It's a discovery of what is true. This is how it is, really. Not the way I like it, not the way I think it should be, but how it actually is. We have to be open. It's, it's the essence of it. And W, wonder. Curious, open, but interested. Not just open. Open with that staying power. Open, and what's really here? Open and getting close to. Not just any old open, but really let it in, open. W, I think of the word wonder, I think of children. I always think of a little little kid. Who's, they're fascinated when they're new, young children. They're really interested. It's rare to see. In fact, it's a, when we ever see a little kid who's kind of like not interested, we know there's something severely wrong with a child because they don't have that bright, wide-eyed wonder. That fresh, innocent, curious, available, what's happening? What's this? Why? Why? That is delightful. We need that attitude too. Wonder. Wonder what's going on. And that is just completely shut. As soon as we say, oh, I know what's going on. No more wonder in that moment. Not possible. We filled it up with certainty. So that's certain, it's mysterious. And even if we understand something in this moment, the next moment's going to be different. So what's now here? So that available, open curiosity. Little children, you know, we... We envy them and we're scared for them. We envy their, their innocent delight. We sort of want it. And we're worried about it because they're, they're not protected by certainty. They're so vulnerable. But we, we find that attractive. We wish, wish for this. We don't want to lose this. We do lose this. 
You've got to be realistic, not naive, but at the same time open. It's a very delicate thing, beginner's mind. It's beautiful and it's essential. So one major piece that we see when we come here and we settle down and we become friendly and we open ourselves to what is and we let ourselves be a little curious with this moment's experience and we do this practice over and over. Of course, one of the, one of the things that become very obvious to us is how exhausting it is to do anything else. This other strategy that we've been doing our whole lives is so exhausting. We are so busy. We're so frantically busy. And it's so odd, isn't it? You come here on retreat and you can't be... There's nothing... You have one hour a day yogi job and then you're just walking slowly. When you even make projects out of that, I think I'm going to clean my teeth after lunch and after supper. We just get busy. We're planning all our little tasks, our tiny little tasks. We have so few. We take them all away from you and you make more of them. We just want to be busy. And then we realize, you know, every time we have a little realization, we just feel, gosh, I've just been trying so hard to be happy. I've been trying so hard to make it okay. It's so sweet what we do. It's so not wrong. It's so exhausting and it's so futile so often. It becomes so obvious to us. So the antidote to this exhausting, frantic, desperately busy, endless churning of the wheels, spinning of the wheels that we do, or chasing the tails that we do in the name of being happy, the antidote, which is also how we must practice, is relax, is rest. This has to be a judicious kind of relax. It doesn't mean relax and just go on spinning and spinning because that's what we're naturally doing. It's not that kind of relax. It's a kind of allowing just the simplicity of just breathing in and breathing out. Rain, sun, aching, not aching. Just relax about it. This is it. This actually is life here. We're just sitting, it's quiet, the heart beats, sometimes we worry, sometimes we're quiet. It's pretty easy when we can relax with it. Instead of this endless driving, oh, I want to do this, I want to do I wonder about this, evaluating that, trying this. It's so busy going on inside, we can relax. So a large part of our practice is learning, okay, just to settle down, calm down. And when you come out of retreat, as you know, you've all sat, some of you sat tons. People look at you and they say, my goodness, you look like you've lost weight. (laughs) And they mean you've lost all that psychic weight. Where have your wrinkles gone? You've gone back in time. You look younger. It's that. It's that calming that happens. So uh, Mary Grace this morning was encouraging you to slow down, take it easy, simplify. We don't believe that's the right way. We really believe deeply that being busy and working hard and 
is the way. We've always done it that way. This is this other way. Undo all that. Just here, just this. don't need you to protect yourself. You don't need to defend yourself. No one's needing to deal with you. There's nothing much to do. You don't need to impress anybody. No one's looking at you. <laughs> They're busy being with their own stuff. You don't have to be right or smart. All of it you can drop. What a relief. Many, many times, or many retreats, I think, this is the best holiday. I don't need to go and lie in the sun and get sand everywhere and you know, have to consume weird food. I can just, this is hard. This is the best holiday. Being fed, taken care of. It's the rest that we want. The rest from that crazy neurotic struggling to be happy. And the dust settles. Confusion settles. No strategizing required here. So that's the practice. Practice, settle, calm down, steady, S-L-O-W, friendly, open, curiosity. But this other piece that I was mentioning last night when we took refuge, this to me becomes increasingly um, appreciated, I think. I appreciate increasingly how um, nourished I am and how we need this nourishment by reflecting, you know, reflecting on the refuges in whatever way they can be alive for you and be feeding you. We do the practice, but we need the heart for the practice. We need our hearts to be fed in doing it. And so, as I described last night, I'll just remind you again the way I, I uh, love these refuges. It's like just to reflect from time to time at the beginning of your day or the beginning of a sitting or in the evening, some reflection at like, What do I really, really love about this? Why do I do this? What is it that nourishes me here? That I really do know this mind can become clear. I can become bright. I can be so aware. So much less confused as possible. I'm I'm living it. It's happening. It's beautiful. Confusion's exhausting, confusion's distorting, confusion's disconnecting, confusion's ex- dukkha. And just remembering this, this is the refuge in the Buddha, this awakening possibility, that how we experience it, how this awareness can see clearly and more and more clearly. And what this awareness sees when it's clear, the clearer it is, the more truly it sees whatever it's seeing. That's the Dharma. Whatever's being seen, whatever's available to this awareness is the Dharma. And the Dharma itself appears to become purer. Things become more real. Instead of it being the sound of a plane going overhead that's a growling noise, it is a growling noise and it is a plane going overhead. It's also a bunch of people flying somewhere who have lives, we see more, we open. The Dharma is everything, and more and more and more comes into focus. We see more deeply, truly, clearly what's going on. It's it's beautiful. It's nourishing. We know this is wholesome. And Sangha, 
when I see clearly what's happening, I care. I can't not care. It's only when I don't know what's going on I don't care because I'm not, I'm not there. But when I'm open to and understand something, someone, I care about it. We start caring about even the tiniest little salamanders. The odd one peeking out. Today I had a sweet experience. I was just walking up here to give the talk. And just um, outside, just almost the end of the building where room number five is, there's a window for room number five, just on the walkway right there was a little green frog. And I could see it because it was in the light, but there's the shadow of the corner of the building, and just two feet away it would be dark. And people were coming out, and it was going to get trodden on, quite likely. So I had this sweet experience of, oh, little frog, and I had to pick it up, and it jumped away, and I picked it up some more, and it was all in my hand, and I threw it out into the grass, and it was sweet. If I hadn't noticed it, or I just... We don't connect with things. When we're more aware, we connect. It's lovely. The harmonious relating that is the healing of the whole world, the healing of me and all of us, comes from being open, from being connected, from understanding, comes from clear awareness, seeing what's so. That's the Buddha, that's the Dharma, that's the Sangha. These nourish us, reflect in these ways. This also, it isn't just doing the practice, the instructions, following along, what, you, what is said, what is taught. It's why, remembering why how it works, what it does for us, all of us. Another little piece about Sangha. This is one of the oldest traditions known in human evolution in in society. This particular tradition is an old one. I mean, there are many religious practices and traditions and they've warped and changed and shifted. This has been going on like this. People saying these same things, chanting the same chants, 2,500 years. It's approximately 100 generations of people. So it is more than just us. It's got this long momentum. Incredible. I find that so encouraging. There's a gratitude hut. I don't know if any of you have been down there. A lot of you know this place and know it, but just beyond the main gate, keep walking down. A little driveway goes down to the lower hall down there, community hall in the bookshop. And then just beyond that, on the right, is this little tiny building. It's a gratitude. Go in there and you'll see pictures of the lineage holders of this lineage. It's a beautiful thing. This is the nourishment we need. I would love to live like a river flows, carried by the surprise of its own unfolding. John O'Donohue, the Irishman, he died just in January. Mm. I'll end with a poem, as we so often like to do, I like to do. Some of you know this poem. If you know me, it's my favorite poem. by Hafiz. The small man builds cages for everyone he knows, while the sage, that's us, who has to duck his head when the moon is full, keeps dropping keys all night long for the beautiful, rowdy prisoners. We don't go and get those prisoners out 
we just make it possible that they can come out when they're ready. But we keep on dropping keys all day long, all night long, by just being here, being available to what is. It's a process of prisoners coming out. That's the cleaning that happens. One more time. The small man builds cages for everyone he knows, while the sage, who has to duck his head when the moon is low, keeps dropping keys all night long for the beautiful, rowdy prisoner. I'll just sit quietly now for a minute or two. Thank you for your attention. hope it's helpful. I will have a walking period. And uh, 9 o'clock sitting at 9 o'clock, and uh, at the end of that sitting, we'll do some kind of chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.